Hello and welcome to the Platinum Group interview series. I'm Dale Kirshner and today we're talking with Tom Hubler. Tom's the author of The Soul of Family Business. He's a well-known public speaker, a columnist, and a consultant who has proven time and time again to be the expert on knowing how to protect and enhance one's family in a family business, especially during challenges, challenging times such as these. Tom's also a consultant uh, with the Platinum Group and he created the Minnesota Family Business Awards, which is an annual event, and you can read about the winners of that event, the award recipients, every year in Twin Cities Business Magazine. Tom, thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Happy to be with you, Dale. So, you know, I think number one, um, when it comes to family businesses especially, what is in your mind, the number one thing that they need to be doing right now to survive the COVID-19 economy? I think, uh, you know, it's the first number one thing is to have a plan. And, and I basically have always been a real strong advocate of that. Um, I mentioned uh, in one of our previous discussions about my experience of working for a family business in St. Paul when I was a junior in high school and stamping 303 10s of peas. In those days, you had to stamp the price on the peas. And Bill Nolan, and the, the, the store was owned by uh, six siblings, three boys and three girls, and Bill was the oldest of the boys, and he was the president of the company. Very jocular guy, and always talked in riddles, and one day I was stamping these price on peas, and he came down the aisle, and he said to me, what's your plan? I said, I don't have a plan. I'm busy putting peas in the shelf. And he said to me again, what's your plan? I said, I don't, you know, I don't have a plan. I'm busy putting peas in the shelf. Like, leave me alone. And he said, a plan that isn't working is better than no plan at all. And he walked off and I thought, oh, what a dumb thing to say. Well, I've used that my whole career in family businesses when I taught at St. Thomas. And it's, it's critical under these current circumstances that people have a plan about how they're going to you know, maintain themselves both as a business, but in particular as a family, so that the, all the stress that's occurred uh, and created by the pandemic, as well as the uh, recent uh, George, George Floyd uh, murder and cir circumstances that occurred as a result of that don't uh, you know, distress people to the extent that they're not able to make good decisions. So that's the number one thing, I think. So, and then from a planning perspective, too, in terms of the business, how far out can somebody plan right now? I mean, it's, it seems like there are new surprises every day, and we don't quite know what's going to happen with this economy. So how can you plan beyond just the next day or two sometimes? Well, I think that's part of it is, is being flexible and being a, a, adaptable and being able to pay attention to what's going on in the environment and then make a, a, a course correction if that's necessary. But the idea is to have a plan to work from and that you can make changes from. And again, that was Bill's point. If you don't have a plan, you can't make it in the middle of a crisis. So you have to have a plan that you can make adjustments to and, uh, and be flexible and tolerant and, and uh, go, with, go with the flow. How important is it to seek outside help in times like this? I mean, sometimes I think we all kind of get this bunker mentality where it's like, okay, I have to figure this out, I have to figure this out. And then we don't take the time to think, well, wait a second, are there some people out there that maybe could help me? I think that you know, one of the problems you know, that entrepreneurs have is that they're very successful. And that's obviously been a real boon for them in terms of their success of their companies, but also is their Achilles heel because they can't do it alone. And one of the things that entrepreneurs generally try to do is they try to do it alone. And so working with their advisors, their accountant, their, uh, sometimes their attorney, uh, their financial planner, 
their uh, business planner. I mean, all of these are resources that they could utilize to help stabilize what's going on in their companies and again in their families. And the idea is not to do it alone. What do you do if you know you need outside help that you, you, know, you don't have the, the expertise that you need right now, but you also can't afford to pay for that expertise and you don't know where to go? Um, what, what do you do? Call you and me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know, I, you, know, I, you know, I think that all of us are, uh, from my perspective, really generous. And I know that there are circumstances where companies uh, need the help but can't afford it. And there are times when I've, you know, made a, you know, what I call a contribution to the common good by helping them in way, you know, in ways that they couldn't afford. And because it's just important, there was an iconic business here in the, in Minneapolis where, you know, they needed all kinds of help. And I, you know, did my very best to help them out and got other people involved and were able to do it at a, you know, a tremendously reduced cost that they, you know, they wouldn't have been able to afford any of this. And, but that's what, you know, that's what people like us do. Uh, in those kinds of circumstances. And I also mentioned, call Platinum. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's another resource, you know, and, uh, you know, and say, hey, listen, I need some help. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in a bad spot right now, but I need your help. Would you be willing to help me and see what they say? I mean, because I think, again, Platinum is a very generous, committed organization that wants to help people. I think that's a, it's a good point, not just because of Platinum Group, but I, I think it's a good point because of, of just reaching out to anybody like the Platinum Group, and yeah. especially if they're like the Platinum Group in that if they don't have the answer or the expertise, they might very well know somebody who does, right. and they might be able to provide that resource. Um, so that's a good point. Um, it's, like, uh, it's like Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery in Lake Wobegon, and his, his philosophy was... If, if we don't have it here, you don't need it. And so that's not the way Platinum works. And that's not the way all good professional organizations work. They do find other resources and help plug uh, people into those resources and help them be successful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how about family business situations where they're planning to sell the business or they're planning to do the transition to the next generation and all of a sudden COVID-19 hit? Um, what are you able to do to help those folks? I think basically, you know, uh, it's to help them basically tread water basically and say, listen, this may not be the right time to do this, both in terms of our family or as well as the company. And the company may have lost value as a result of what's going on. And so they need to strengthen the organization, strengthen the, you know, the, uh, the balance sheet of the, of the company and use their resources uh, to help do that and, and postpone doing that. And I've had clients where that's been the case, where they've had to do that. And they've said, hey, listen, you know, we're going to postpone this. We're going to wait a while. We're going to wait a year or so. And in the meantime, we're going to hire somebody, and they did, to uh, a non-family person to run the organization and uh, train and develop uh, the next generation of leaders. Those things sound so logical and so easy. But as I mentioned in the intro, you specialize in the family, in family business. Right. How do you right. deal with the family dynamics? Uh, tell, tell people listening and, and watching a little bit about that, because that's, that's just so hugely important, and yet it's so complex. I think that, um, you, know, you, know, I, you know, I think it's like communicate, 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 and communicate. And it's really, really important to do that. And one of the ways to do that is to have regular family meetings. And family meetings are designed to manage the boundary between your business and your family relationship. And it's to prevent business and financial differences and stresses, particularly stresses in today's environment that are normal when eroding family relationships and vice versa, where 
family politics doesn't come in and upset what goes on in the business. But, but, but more importantly, it's usually business differences eroding family relationships. And one of the ways to manage that is to have regular family meetings to address those sorts of things. And the other thing that's really important is that it's, um, the reality is that all of us uh, who are, and we're all in families of one kind or another, we all love each other, but, but inadvertently we step in each other's toes once in a while and we need to forgive each other and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I, for, you know, I forgive you, that type of thing, and create a new beginning so that you can go forward and, um, and, uh, and create some, some tolerance and connection. And, and again, one of the things I say is that people are never going to get 100% of what they want and they're all going to be called to make a contribution to the common good out of their love, their generosity, and their sense of abundance and the trust that if I make a contribution now, you'll make one when, the, when your turn comes and everybody's gonna have a turn. And those are the things that are required to get through something like what's going on right now in, in, a, um, in a positive way. And then the other thing I would add is that one of the things to avoid because people are sheltering at home and working from home is to create a, a plan about how you're gonna maintain a balance between your family and your business system so that the place, your home, your loving home, doesn't become a pressure cooker. So again, it's, uh, it's important to have clear uh, expectations and understandings about work hours and times, getting away for lunch, getting away you know, from uh, and setting hours of work. It's easy to continue to work and work and work and work and work when you're at home. And you need to say, wait a second, it's five o'clock and it's time to quit and, and, and do that and, and move on and maintain some sense of balance in your life. Boy, I need that right now. <laughs> I, need to, I need to follow that because it's just been, you know, I, I lose track of what day it is. What, yes. You know. um, so I totally get that. Um, one last question on family dynamics. What have you done uh, and seen that's helpful for folks where there's that struggle between the financial side of the business and the pressure of getting those financial results and, and making sure the company does what it needs financially? But then there's the family dynamic. And let's say that you're missing your numbers because of somebody in the family who's working in the company. Um, that gets pretty complicated. So what have you been able to do to kind of help with those situations? So one, of the, one of the big issues in the, in the field of family business is, are we a business first family or a family first mm -hmm. family? And, and from my perspective, one of the things I talk about is the boss. And every time I mention the boss, everybody thinks I'm talking about the senior generation. And I tease and say, sorry, mom and dad, I've just demoted you. You're no longer the boss around here. And the real boss is an acronym. And the B is for the business. So that I believe that you have to have a strong, positive plan to deal with the, with the business. And then the O is, what do you want for the other about what the other wants? And so like, if you and I are brothers, what do I want for you as my brother about what you say you want? And you need to know that I'm committed to helping you get that and vice versa. And we would have a reciprocal commitment to each other's success. And that's what creates a team is people committed to helping each other be successful. Then the first S is what do you want for yourself? It's important to be able to articulate what you want for yourself, but you can't have a team if people only think about what they want for themselves. So that's why we create the Hubler Kirshner Common Family Vision to unite, uh, unite us and so that as we articulate what we want for ourselves, it's under the umbrella of the Common Family Vision. And then the last S is what do you want for the other stakeholders, which I would define as the family as a whole, the employees, the customers, the vendors, the board, 
and sometimes the community. And so the goal here is to create win-win rather than win-lose decisions that would honor the boss to help you become and or maintain yourself as a vision-driven family-owned business as opposed to problem-focused. And so that's, you know, that's how you create that kind of balance. And again, if you, if you step over the line and step at your other's toes to say, hey, wait, wait a second, you just stepped on my toes and that hurts and let people know that and don't let it, don't bottle it up and keep it all because then all of a sudden you have this big explosion. And, uh, and that's kind of what's been happening in the community where people have kept things bottled up for years and years and years and years and kaboom, you know, with the George Floyd thing, it just exploded. Yep. And let's actually use that as a transition to a separate subject here that um, I don't think a lot of people are aware of your background when it comes to black lives and how black yep. lives have mattered to you in a deep way far longer than uh, the model Black Lives Matter has been out there. Can you tell people a little bit about your perspective what well, and, and kind of where are you at with things with George Floyd and, and what we need to do from here? Well, I'll give you the long version. I don't think I've mentioned this ever to you, but you know, when I was going to school, I went to St. Cloud State for about five quarters. And while I was there, I lived and worked at the St. Cloud Children's Home. And I worked in the little kids cottage and it was a home for emotionally disturbed kids. And there was a little dorm for five little boys and five little girls and so forth and so on. If you had evening duty, you had to uh, you know, have dinner, homework, TV, play, and then eventually you had to get them ready for bed, put their pajamas on and put them into bed and tuck them in and, uh, and kiss them goodnight and tell them they were loved. And that didn't make any difference who you were, what color you were, anything like that. So then when I finally, I came to the University of Minnesota and I finally graduated and I got, and at my entry, I got a job at Catholic Charities and the entry-level jobs at, at Catholic Charities were uh, doing adoptions. So the first couple of years of my career, I did adoptions. And when I got there, there was a book, a three-ring binder of hard-to-place kids. And it was mixed race kids, black kids, uh, Native American kids, and white kids with physical disabilities. And I thought, well, I'm going to adopt a couple of black kids. And that's exactly what happened. So both of my adult children, uh, Kirsten, who's uh, 49, and John's 48, are adopted. And they're both black. And so I've had enormously uh, incredible experiences about understanding things from a, a different perspective, a black perspective, that I would have never, ever, ever had had I not done that. And I think that's one of the things that's really critical. And I was recently talking with my, um, my oldest granddaughter, who's 23 and just graduated from the University of Wisconsin, and she majored in Afro-American Afro studies. And we were having a great conversation about what's been going on in the country and in George Floyd and so forth. And her perspective, and I agree with her, is that education is really critical and that we all need to be educated. And I know that I continue to be educated and there are things that I haven't uh, hadn't had a clue about until recently, like the Tulsa massacre is something that I didn't know about. And I took history in high school and in college. And I even took a class on minority group relationships from Carolyn Rose at the University of Minnesota, who was, uh, uh, she and her husband Arnold were the research assistants on the first book on uh, and research on racial issues in America called The American Dilemma by Gunnar Myrtle. And in spite of all that, there are things I don't know. And so I continue to learn every day. And I think that that's one of the commitments that we all can make is to educate ourselves and to create an understanding about what it is, what is it like to be a person of color in our white culture and begin to make you know, adjustments as a result of that. And we can all do that. It doesn't take a lot of effort to, to educate. 
And Tom, I, I wanted to ask you about Kirsten when she was a, a kid and some of the situations oh. she, she went through. But before I do that, on what you just mentioned, for some of the folks out there that are uh, white business owners or leaders with predominantly white workforces, why is it important for them to worry about black lives? Uh, well, it affects our whole community. I mean, it's like, it's critical. And, um, you know, uh, you know, we talk about the road from high school to prison. I mean, it's like, if we don't do something to strengthen, for instance, here in the Twin Cities, in Minneapolis in particular, you know, uh, we have one of the worst uh, disparities uh, educationally in the country. I mean, it's shocking right here in the Twin Cities. Yep. And the graduation rate for kids of color in the Minneapolis public schools is 51%. I'm, I'm involved with an organization called Banyan that provides educational support to families and kids. And the graduation rate for kids of color through the Banyan program is 98%. And so it, it makes a big difference because the cost, the cost, and what's his name? I can never remember his name, but he's from the, um, the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank here in the Twin Rolnick? Cities. What's his name on the Was guy? Was it Bert Rolnick? Rolnick, Rolnick, yes. His research is, is indicates that, you know, that we pay mm -hmm. tremendously if we don't make that kind of an investment and, uh, and help prevent these kinds of occur occurrences and educate and help people be successful. So it's a, it's a you know, if nothing else, it's an economic thing uh, to do that. Yeah, I know when I was editor of uh, Twin Cities Business Magazine, I actually researched all that, did a column once where I also really? pointed out that these individuals, the black children are the ones that have the hardest time getting the graduation from high school. Um, yes. They're actually at a, greater disparity than the Hispanics uh, and the Hmong uh, and the Native Americans. Um, but I just, read an article, I just read an article about Gordon Parks, who grew up, you know, was from, I think, Kansas or someplace like that, but ended up living here in St. Paul with, a, with an aunt or something like that. And he, he never, ever graduated from high school because of all the circumstances. He went on to become a national figure in the black community and a photographer and a movie director and so forth and so on because of his talent and grit as a person. Uh, but it takes enormous um, uh, resources to be able to do that. And it, it, it's a real tribute to him that he's able to do that. But just a, that's an illustration of somebody who, uh, another one is August Wilson, who uh, was a, a black playwriter who lived in St. Paul for a number of years. And his first play that I remember knowing about is called Fences. And uh, he wrote some of that here in St. Paul, but he never graduated from high school. He turned in a paper one time, he turned in the paper one time, and the teacher said, where'd you get that, who, who, you know, where'd you plagiarize that? And he was a terrific writer as a high school kid. And he just dropped out of school and went to the library and read and read and read and became a, a renowned uh, African-American playwright here, you know, in our country. Yeah, and that's part of what I was gonna try to hit on was the talent. Yeah, there's yes. an abundance of talent that we're losing. Yes, um, yes. Well, just just minority businesses. I mean, the, the immigrate the people who emigrate to this country, right. you know, create businesses at a rate way beyond the the normal population here, and are making a tremendous economic contribution. And yet, the current administration is is negative about immigrants, and it's it, it just doesn't make sense from an economic point of view. You know, one of the things too that uh, I know you and I have talked about before is. Some people say it's the unconscious bias. I wonder if it's just not being aware of what's happening. But tell folks a little bit about Kirsten's situation a couple of times. I think one time when she well, went to uh, Uptown and another time when she was shopping. You know, my daughter Kirsten was, a, was an all-state gymnast. And she uh, was a very preppy kid. 
and uh, was with her with some of her friends, uh, black girlfriends, over uh, at the Diamond Lake Bowl before it closed. And they went up to Uptown to get some hamburgers, and they stopped in the Burger King and got their hamburgers. And were coming out, and were stopped by a policeman who wanted to know what they were up to. And as it turned out, uh, he was going to let them go. And then another officer came along and said, "Well, wait a second. How old are you, girls?" Kirsten, my daughter, was basically two months away from being 18. One of the other girls was 18. And then the third girl was 17. Well, they took my daughter and the 17-year-old and put them in a paddy wagon and drove them around for an hour and a half before they called us to let her let us know that she was at, I think, the 23rd precinct or one of the precincts. And we had to go pick her up. And then we got a curfew violation or, or we could go to court. And we ended up going to court. And one of my buddies who was an attorney said, hey, if they'd have been white, they would they would let them go, and that's probably true. So we went to court, and I called my buddy to say thanks for sending your associate along. And he said, "Yes, I heard that um, that, that we got a dismissal, and the dad got to make his speech." And, and I was and, and I did make a speech, but I was making it for the benefit of my daughter to help her understand that you don't you don't tolerate that sort of thing. You you have to stand up for yourself and let them know that these are happening. And then the other thing that happened is that uh, when Kirsten was out shopping one time with one of her closest friends that she had met when they were in Montessori school together. And they'd been long friends for years. And uh, Kira was her name, worked at the Galleria. They were at the Galleria doing shopping there. And Kira was the marketing director and they were shopping and they were profiled by the security people and accused of shoplifting and putting uh, stuff in the uh, carriage where my granddaughter, that I mentioned to you, the 23 year old granddaughter was just a baby at the time. And, uh, and so Kira said, well, I work here. I mean, you know, call the manager. Well, the manager was Sue Wolf, who uh, came up and she was a friend of ours. And when she saw Kirsten, she just burst into tears. And, and I said to them, well, I'm not gonna sue you, but I want you to have an educational program to help people understand about profiling. And that's just the beginning of, and, and, they, and, what, and it wasn't unusual for them to be called the N word and things like that. I mean, all that sort of stuff occurred. Um, and again, that's stuff that I had no clue about, in spite of the fact that I grew up in the inner city of St. Paul and went to school with uh, African-American kids in junior high school and high school and, uh, and lived in the neighborhood and I had a paper out in the neighborhood where I had black customers. But, but again, had no clue about what that meant uh, to be black in our community. So what should business leaders, owners and uh, employees in general, what should everybody be doing right now to, to try to avoid those kinds of situations from, and worse from continuing to occur? I think everybody can make a contribution and, and doing so by educating and making, making, your, making yourself available and to, and to speak out when things occur and to take a look at you know, what you can do differently and how, how are you perpetuating the system, the system of white uh, privilege that, that, that exists that, uh, that white people and men in particular take for granted. And uh, we all need to take a look inside and be introspective. I mentioned uh, to you the other day the, the play, The White Card, which was at the Fun Arbor Theater recently, where the whole purpose of the play was to show and to demonstrate that it's not a, uh, a black issue or a brown issue, it's a white issue, and that we all need to look and be introspective. I recently was at a, was at a meeting, a Zoom meeting, where the staff of an organization who were of color talked about their experiences of being of color in the community and asked the staff who were white and I as a board member for this organization to just listen. And again, it was heart-wrenching and emotional to hear the stories of what this, these, these professionals 
had gone through in their lives um, of being of color. Yep. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left uh, today. Um, with regards to the COVID-19 economy, the next six to 12 months, any thoughts that you have that we didn't kind of already touch on in terms of what business leaders and owners should be doing uh, to now- I, Again, grow? I think it's critical, 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 critical that they um, you know, keep their antenna out, that, they, that they, they work with their advisors, that, that they don't do it alone, that they uh, have a team of people that can advise them and coach them and guide them. And that uh, that they you know are remain flexible and keep their their ear to the ground to know what's going on and uh, make adjustments as as indicated, and I think that um, hopefully we'll uh, you know one of the things that's just shocking to me is that we're banned from going to Europe this summer because we you know we're our our, our statistics in terms of, of managing the uh, pandemic are so bad that they won't let us come to Europe and I think holy smokes, we've got to do a much better job. And uh, we need to encourage our employees and our customers and everyone to be responsible and to wear a mask and wash your hands and all this other stuff. And, and to be resilient and to understand that we're all in this together and to support each other and to reach out to each other and say, how can I be helpful to you? Uh, you know, gratitude is something that's really, really important. And it's the antidote uh, to consumption and to, and to really say, hey, I'm here for you. And, and to do that consistently and, and uh, throughout uh, the next few months or years, actually. Well, that's a good note to end on. So, Tom, thank you for sharing You're some welcome. perspectives and experiences with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I also want to thank our viewers and listeners as well. If you have any questions you'd like to run by Tom or anyone else at the Platinum Group, call 952-829-5700. You can also learn more about Tom and the Platinum Group by going to theplatinumgrp.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a great rest of your day.